I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, Hungry Dogs Run Slower today, it's Andy Greenwald! Just be, be gentle with me. My God, my best friend, <laughs> my, uh, my rock. Yeah. Uh, Andy and I, are. we come to you on a, a Monday after the Philadelphia Eagles lost to the Dallas Cowboys as everybody is now kind of uh, pivoted to this being a Philadelphia Eagles podcast, I wanted to open up the floor, Andy, for some some comments and some concerns if you wanted to get that off your chest. No, no. I, I mean, it's not about the team. I mean, nobody likes to lose on national television badly. Yeah. Two straight weeks. Yep. That's not a thing people sign up for, <laughs> generally. Uh, there are some pluses here. Uh-huh. Jay Ferguson is happy. Yes. the the this One of the stars of your of your television show, Briar Patch, Jay Ferguson. It's like, is he going to say masterpiece? (laughs) (laughs) One of the stars, one Uh, of the most important things (laughs) that ever happened to me. He's happy. Um, We got to see each other. Yeah. Briefly. Yeah. Before I ran out crying. (laughs) Um, No, I just like, I I think that this won't come as a surprise to people who listen to the podcast who know that I tend to, uh, I, I think I run a little hot sometimes um, emotionally in my connection to things. Yes. And like first four minutes of all entertainment. It's interesting to watch first, that yeah. in real life, yeah. in real time. Because uh-huh. I think usually what happens is you'll text me and just be like, oh man, I'm not so into this TV show. Or like, I've ki- I I quit. This is stupid. This yeah. TV and show. You just, you're, such a, you're such a nice guy. You just tolerate it. But I'm not usually in the room with you as you are going right. through that process. And within two plays of this Eagles game against the Cowboys, you were like, I was. I, I would like to eject myself through the ceiling. <laughs> I was not in a good headspace. I mean, I think that broadly, I would say, and I've said this before, I'm, I'm a, a bad sports fan in that I take my little um, glass menagerie of emotional <laughs> yeah. well-being yeah. and I hand it over <laughs> to Lane Johnson and Jason Kelsey yeah. and the rest of the Eagles offensive line. And um I get what I deserve, frankly, for doing that and not taking better care of the better boundaries for myself. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, we're, you know, I think it's, there's still a lot of football to be played. People okay. should, but, but let's, let's, let's just turn the, let's turn the camera around here and say that like, you, you are, you are the guy everyone imagines you to be. You're a rock. <laughs> you are, you were, you know, you were keeping it light. You were um, playing with a, with a two-year-old. Uh-huh. You, you were. Make it sound like I just found one on the street. You it brought was, one. <laughs> it was like, oh, would you, I brought a six pack. What'd you bring? Uh, no, you, you were, you were, you were uncle Chris. Yeah. And I was really impressed. Thanks, man. I mean, I think that, uh, we only get this one life here, you know, and I'm not going to let 
I'm not going to let Nick Sirianni decide how I feel on a Sunday night. I, I like watching sports a lot. Yeah. Uh, I don't love losing, but it's all part of the, it's, it's all part of the experience, you know? <laughs> That's incredible. You just need to teach me. Andy, I thought maybe we could start, well, today, yeah. here's the table of contents. Okay. I want to talk to you a little bit about the TV nominations for the Golden Globes, mm-hmm. because those came out this morning. Mm-hmm. And while uh, I still am dubious about the how rigorous the, the Golden Globe voting and nomination process is, even though it's no longer uh, solely the, the job of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association to decide these things, I do think it is the f- uh, first, first shot of the, of the award season in earnest. Uh, we've had like a couple of other um, film mm-hmm. awards, but this is the first time we'll get to see some of these titles all strung together and get a sense of what, quote, this town thinks of uh, the TV slate mm-hmm. from the year. And I also wanted to talk to you about The Curse. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about Leave the World Behind, a sure. movie from our buddy Sam Esmail. Yeah. I had a new little gimmick I wanted to try out on you this weekend, though. This week. Yeah. On a Monday. Can you tell the people why you were so productive last night? I really thought that was a... I appreciated that. I, I got home and I said to myself, <laughs> Philadelphia is not going to be a total failure tonight. I'm going to get something done. So I watched The Gilded Age with my wife. We had a delightful time. And uh, the Brooklyn Bridge opened on this episode. Oh. FYI, no spoilers. And um, Do you want to know how that turned out? Well, I learned well, a lot. Did you know that, that it was, according to the Gilded Age, that the Brooklyn Bridge was largely, the construction was overseen by Emily Roebling, the wife of the the person who Hey, gets, that what? sounds like the woke mind virus at work. <laughs> Come on. Um, anyway. I don't know a lot about the Brooklyn Bridge. That is interesting. Yeah. I, it's great that you're getting your... All your, your American sense history of- <laughs> from Gilded Age. Uh, but I thought we could introduce a, a thing, yeah. a topic for, uh, for Mondays here when we're just kind of... Just feeling it out? Yeah, just feeling it out, and it's the watch of the weekend. Are you predicting there are going to be some grim Mondays going forward? No, but I think that uh, yeah. I think that we've found ourselves with large gaps in the TV schedule from time to time, we or did. shows are airing on days that m- more suit themselves to the Thursday pod. Mm-hmm. So the watch of the weekend, I was just, this could be literally anything. Okay. You know, on our on our podcast art, not only are t- our two youthful faces featured. I, I don't know what you're talking about. But I look there's, the same. Uh, you know... Icons for music, books, film, and TV. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I think time's a flat circle, and we don't always have to be on the cutting edge of something that was released in a second. So if there was anything that you watched this weekend... Okay. And I use that in quotation marks. It could be music. It could be a book. It could be a magazine article. It could be anything that you felt like, I really enjoyed that. I want to recommend this to people out there. I watched my um, Super Bowl dreams crumble. <laughs> no, uh, I did... I, I did. I watched. I did watch two things. You're going to be surprised. I'm not going to be surprised. You're not because no. I tell you everything that I do. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not going to be surprised because you okay. love the arts. Thank you. I'm passionate. I'm passionate about the arts. Um, I saw a film this weekend. Uh huh. I saw a film that I really, really don't want to call "The Boy and the Heron" because that's the the dumbest title change in recent history. What's the What, what do you mean? What's the the, original the project title? is called "How Do You Live." Oh. There's a. It's based on a on a um, decades old book called How Do You Live. the The name is relevant, like in the text of the movie, and it's also a beautiful name for this beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. And the boy in the heron sounds like somebody was just like, God, I don't know what to do with this metaphysical shit. Like kids like birds, huh? <laughs> like I I don't know what I don't. I just want to be in that. So meeting. you don't think Miyazaki had anything to say about what this thing was titled? I think he he has a lot of control over over most things. Okay, but I but I. I 
I don't know. He's an older man. Yeah. You know, I listen, I believe in octogenarians' ability to lead their enterprises. Absolutely. I am all in on that as Sh- a Shout premise. out to Joe Biden for going to Philly today. He's in Philly to give a grant to the fire department. And I think that's yeah. bold. I think that's bold leadership. When when a city is crumbling, when a city is caving in, can he give Joe a, Biden is yeah. is like let's make this into Helms Deep here, baby. Can, can he give a grant to our secondary, <laughs> like an exemption from salary cap? Um, and anyway, I saw Boy and the Heron, which is the new potentially final film by one of the great masters of, frankly, of cinema. Yeah, um, Hayao Miyazaki. Um, I hear great things. Yeah, you hear great things. You, one thing about that guy is you know how to say his name consistently. You're a big fan. <laughs> uh, it is, it's a masterpiece. It really is. And it's it's just absolutely, it's really incredible. And okay. it is. What's um, it about? Well, so there's this boy. <laughs> and then. And well, is there a heron? There is. So but, it's a pretty good title Title then when you think about it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Joe Hollywood. <laughs> like, just make it simple for me. Is there a bird in this movie? If so, you put that in the title. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They didn't call it like just three days of paranoia. They call it three days of the condor. Exactly. And then you were in. <laughs> if it was just like, I'm nervous because my office got shot up, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have watched it. No. It was called three days of the condor. I was like, yeah. Cool. Birds. Um, so it is It's sort of hard to describe because it is a summation of everything that he's ever done in his career. It is remarkable. It is it is so deeply suffused with references and images and themes and obsessions from every film he's made across his career, um, from other worlds falling from the sky, from old from old crones, from talking animals to um, the basically the 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 violence and trauma of the war in the Pacific on a generation of people in Japan. It's it's suffused with all of that, um, but done with like the same perspective that I would say it, it's not it's not out of hand to compare him to Scorsese in the sense that they're both in this late period yeah. where where they're making movies that are of a piece with everything they've ever made, but their perspective on what motivates them and what inspires their art and their and the emotion surrounding it is deeper and richer. And I was really moved by this movie. So I didn't give you it, it's about a kid who evacuates from Tokyo with his father after his mother dies during the war and is living with his aunt, who his father is now marrying. Ooh. And see, now you're interested. Um, I never know which which is your way in. Um, and he sort of finds a hidden world. Yeah. Um, that's connected to his family, that's connected to the loss of his mother, um, that's connected to birds. They're birds. I can't tell if that's really your driver, but it's a it's a really beautiful film. So, Andy, you're going to be on the big picture this week talking about this film with I'll, Sean. And I'll talk more clearly, I promise. No, I mean, you're doing a great job selling it to, obviously, I'm like, you know, I'm flying a little bit blind here, um, as birds do sometimes. Mm. But, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, if, if people want to hear like a more in-depth conversation about this film, he's, Andy's going to be on Big Pick with Sean and Charles Holmes, right? Yes. Okay. We won't be doing any drafts, though. That's your That's your bag. I, it is. It's strangely, and I never win, but I've become something of a draft maven at the Ringer yeah. Podcast Network. I go on Bands Plane and do it. Um, okay. My watch of the weekend was Saturday Night Live, uh, wow. which I don't think I've watched live uh, in well over five years. But I enjoy waking up and then like taking a look at at the the viral content that's produced from it. Mm-hmm. And this weekend it was hosted by 
the person who I've kind of decided is my favorite movie star, oh, all in all, which is Adam Driver. And I believe Driver's hosted before. He was hosted with Olivia Rodrigo as the musical guest. So it's a holiday episode. I always kind of enjoy holiday-themed, like sort of holiday-vibed mm-hmm. episodes of the talk shows and the variety shows towards the end of the year. It seems like they have like a real uh, spirit of the season. And Driver was awesome. I watched his monologue. It was really funny. He did a song on a piano about his Christmas list for Santa. And then three or four of the like better sketches I've seen in a while. Like I said, I don't watch it yeah. live, but I do watch a bunch of the sketches like as they're kind of aggregated and curated in, in blog posts, which I guess is pathetic, but is also the way I happen to ingest Saturday Night Live. But he was really, really funny. And also like... A couple of these sketches, he seemed like off book. Like he maybe learned the lines. <laughs> so he's just, committed. Yeah. And I was just like, this dude just played Enzo Ferrari. And he's like, he's like processing like, like four or five sketches on Saturday Live. You could see him looking at cue cards a couple of times. But there's a, I highly recommend people check out the, uh, the beep beep sketch. If okay. you can look that up. And also the uh, sketch where he plays a unit manager of an apartment building in Hollywood at a FYC event. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. relevant to our yeah. interest. Yeah, it's really funny. Have we miss have we been misreading him for a while because definitely his public image has been very serious. Yes. Um you know and and he seemed miserable during any like Star Wars related press run. There's always the stories about how he can't watch anything that he's in. He becomes physically ill and has to leave. It just felt like heavy. There's a heaviness. Yeah. And he's been playing Heavies. I mean, he's a he's a he's a. He very had a viral moment actor. recently when somebody asked him, like they, I guess yes. somebody at a Ferrari screening was like, some of their che- race scenes look cheesy, and he was just like, "Fuck you!" Like, like what do you want me <laughs> to say? I respect that. Yeah, but but I for recently for other reasons, I was watching rewatching some of Girls uh-huh. for a season, and I just forget that he is deeply funny. It's yes. not like he he was very much in on the performance he was giving. This wasn't just like he went method and they filmed a way to make him look silly. Like he's. He gets it. He just doesn't get a lot of comic opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking at his uh, at his filmography, and there, uh, you know, you could make one argument, which is that outside of Star Wars, he hasn't had a lot of huge box office successes. Right. But I would make the argument that he routinely has the best taste of any working lead actor. Uh, you can basically go back to when he sort of debuts in the films with like Francis Ha and Lincoln. And all the way through Lewin Davis, uh, while we're young, he's worked a couple of times with Jim Jarmusch. He's worked a couple of times with uh, Noah Baumbach, obviously. He was in Logan Lucky. And basically, all the work he does around the Star Wars movies he's in is fascinating. Black Klansman, mm-hmm. um, The Report, uh, Marriage Story. And then this run that he's been on in the last two years of Last Duel, House of Gucci, White Noise, uh, 65, which I didn't see, and Ferrari, which I have seen. You're not alone in 65. But I know. that's the one weird one that he took that. But I mean, p- private school's expensive in Brooklyn. Yeah. And then the next year, and next year, he's uh, going to be appearing in Francis Ford Coppola's long awaited dream projects, me- me- Megalopolis. I, mean, I was he's already stuttering because I couldn't pronounce that. You saw it coming, you got yeah. nervous. He's, he's, the director's guy. Like, like he's an interesting case because he is a movie star because movie directors want to work with him. Yeah. And he's going to keep getting these parts because, he, I mean, he's good, but you're right about the box office thing. It's interesting to see him and Chalamet navigate the post-DiCaprio rules, which is, you know, famously DiCaprio's like, no capes, no hard drugs. Yes. We can't speak to the latter. Right. But they both seem to be 
following DiCaprio in the other category, which yeah, is they don't. I mean, they, they, well, there's Dune and there's Star Wars. Yeah. They're doing franchise things, which makes sense, but they're trying to be careful about what they choose. Driver is not Reed Richards. Right. Um, and I don't think, we don't know how, quote unquote, close that got, but there's no question that he was there on was Feige's a, a list. There was a very funny period of, of Marvel rumors where it was like Adam Driver has rejected the latest version of the Fantastic yeah, like they Four kept, script. They, like they kept coming to him <laughs> yeah. for it. But, but the, you know, it is a thing. And I think we were talking about this with Emma Stone recently that, and it, it's, Not it's with a, Emma Stone. She was, we were talking oh, about I was talking about it with, with, <laughs> well, I call her Emily. That's actually her real name, you know, but, um, but then I brought it to you yeah. and I said a friend of mine, but I didn't want to like make you uncomfortable. Put me out. Um, well, no, that this is a path that is, um, unfairly, but more often open to male actors, which is like, I will just find the people it, it, you're not going to go wrong. You may not be as rich or, or famous in the short term. But if you just glom on to the good filmmakers mm-hmm. and fill your slate with at least one, one Jarmusch, one Wes Anderson, um, one Noah Baumbach, you just, you stick with them. Yeah. Kelly Reichert or whatever. And, and then you'll, you you'll kind of blossom from there. You'll keep working. Yeah. And you'll feel more fulfilled. And that seems to be what their plan is. Um, you going to see Wonka? I don't think I'll see Wonka. Do you think you'll see Ferrari? That was beautifully done. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we, that you know, some people are like, those guys agree too much. And then with just one f- casual turn of I phrase, say, you reveal the difference between us. When we were, we were together watching the football game last night, there yeah. was a long advertisement for Wonka. And at some point, a micro-sized Hugh Grant with a green face was like floating it's around. Like Oompa Loompa. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Yes. And everybody was like, That's an Oompa Loompa. And I was like, I don't really know anything about this stuff. <laughs> you don't you don't remember the like the Gene Wilder version? I don't think I ever saw it. Not even as a kid. No, I n- never spoke You're to me. Travel baseball. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. All of these rites of childhood, where like your parents, are like Chris, come sit on our knee and watch this beloved and film. I was and like, you're no, like, me and my my twelve year old double play partner. <laughs> we must achieve perfection. Sorry, I got to go hit some fungos with Chet. Yeah. <laughs> no, dude. Every fucking guy on my team was named Danny or Joey. Yeah, it's the 80s. Yeah. Um, Andy, you want to talk about the Golden Globes? Something we haven't really done in earnest in quite some time. I don't know if anyone's done it in earnest. So the Golden Globes were always a punching bag and then always a party. So it's like the mm-hmm. the sort of everybody made fun of the Golden Globes because it had this, I mean, as you always pointed out, this cabal of like... Shadowy cabal of international weirdos. There you go. And that was the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Mm-hmm. That was the voting block for this. And everybody was kind of like, who are these people? Do they just live entirely on junkets and and free trips and yes. things like that? Yes, uh, they sort of immolated in a in a just a sea of controversy, the, too, too numerous to go through. But uh, you can read our buddy Zach Barrett's piece about Brendan Fraser mm-hmm. uh, in GQ magazine from a few years back that really got into it. It essentially spelled the the beginning of the end for the HFPA and and for the Globes as an awards. We thought until. Todd Bowley, uh, who also owns Chelsea Football Club, and you, you hate to see what's happening there with Chelsea. They've spent quite a few billions of pounds mm. on players in their 11th. Um, but, you know, my heart goes out to them. Wow. And so Todd Bowley... International shade from CR. <laughs> and Penske Media kind of collaborated here where they picked up the rights to the HFPA, I believe it's now, or to the Golden Globes, and now it's a Dick Clark Productions production. And Dick Clark, historically, Dick Clark Productions had produced the television show, yes. The Golden Globes. Yes, and it's But they've now involved. taken over 
the entire uh, entity, right? Yeah. There's no longer a Hollywood Foreign Press. Oh, there is, but it's not. That's not who runs the Golden Globes anymore. And now there's this, like, I think to, I, from what I understand, essentially members of the HFPA are now paid journalists by the Glo- Golden Globes website, where they're like a salaried employee who write content for this website and report Yo, on. There's a, still a website that pays. I think so. I, I gotta get that. Yeah, gotta you gotta get, get on that. You're like, y'all, y'all like Larry McMurtry books? You guys, you guys, need, you guys need a TV critic? Yeah. I'm back. Um, there are still some ethical dilemmas, I think, here, but it does seem like between Bully and I believe this is gonna be on CBS? Live on CBS. Okay. So this will be broadcast on CBS on Sunday, January 7th. And it's, soon. it's noted that like the Golden Globes are thought of as, as the... The fun, drunken, mm-hmm. lout, younger brother of the Oscars. And that is not CBS. <laughs> it sort of starts the award yeah. season with a, a boozy party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you were going to watch, maybe I would recommend if you're an awards agnostic person who doesn't feel the need to watch the SAGs and the DGAs and everything and, and, and go through all the, and the independent spirit awards or the Gotham awards or whatever, you can watch the Globes and the Oscars and have a pretty clear picture of, right. of what award season was. And I also recommend doing it that way because then you don't see people do their speeches four times. And when they win the Oscar, you're like, I've heard about this. He did it better. It's about your acting teacher. Mm -hmm. Let's go through some of the television nominees. Can we also say? Oh, yeah, sure. Before we get into the can say whatever you want. No, it's just, I'm I'm feeling my way through this take. But I kind of respect this more because they're just like, look, we just want to give more trophies out. Mm -hmm. Like, it's kind of more honest that this is also totally random yeah. and has no history or foundation or connection to, like, we, we have no idea what the, the preferences are. I mean, the, again... It's an IP test. It's like, there are two words that go together, Golden yeah. Globes, and we're going to see whether or not people will still watch it even though yeah. they, they, it has no... It, yeah. And, you know, we say this every time around the award season, it's always arbitrary, it's always subjective. I think over our colleagues on the big picture, like, Sean and Amanda do a great job every year of sort of contextualizing what Oscar nominations mean. But you can do that because the Academy uh, uh, that votes on the Oscars have been doing it for years, and they are a living entity that takes on members, that that sheds membership, and, and changes slowly or awkwardly sometimes in response to the times. And you can sort of take a long view of it. That's interesting. This, they're like, okay. Yeah. Sure. So we, we there's it, it's a blank slate. We have no idea. But in a way, it's pragmatic that I kind of appreciate because there's a lot of the talk around Hollywood and what Hollywood feels like right now post-strikes is terror, Mm. fearful. Nobody actually knows what's going on in 2024 in terms of like what's getting greenlit, what services are going to exist, all these things. But then the, the wiser, older heads that I've spoken to are like, yeah, it's chaos right now because nobody knows what the ground is. But once the ground is set, People will get back. It's it's like nature heals. It's like those dolphins in the Venice canals. Well, do you think in that, is that in twenty twenty five, people will be making shows again because that's what people are wired to do. And so the reason I bring it up in relation to the Golden Globes is they give awards. Yeah, they give awards. So let's just cut the bullshit, put on a party, and see what happens. Well, I'm going to save my follow up questions mm-hmm. about your wise sage friends that yeah. you have. Uh, One is Emma Stone. I'm glad you asked. Good. Okay. So let's just run through some of these nominations for TV because what I do think it does is paint a useful picture mm-hmm, uh, of the year in television. So for TV drama, the nominees are 1923 on Paramount+, Plus, sure. The Crown, The Diplomat on Netflix, The Last of Us on HBO, The Morning Show on Apple, and Succession on HBO. The comedy or musical, always some fun 
category manipulation going on here. The bear, which is here because it's 30 minutes long, typically, or around 30 to 40 minutes mm-hmm. long. Uh, Ted Lasso, Abbott Elementary, Jury Duty, Only Murders in the Building, and Barry, uh, which is... One of the darkest dramas of the Sometimes last funny, but is, is truly one of the most harrowing things you can watch. Mm-hmm. Best limited series, anthology series, or motion picture made for television. That mm-hmm. goes to Beef, Lessons in Chemistry, Daisy Jones and the Six, All the Light We Cannot See, Fellow Travelers, and Fargo. Uh, and I thought I would just throw in a couple other things here. What do I have? Best performance by an actor in a drama. Pedro Pascal for Last of Us. Kieran Culkin for Succession, Jeremy Strong for Succession, Brian Cox for Succession, Gary Oldman for Slow Horses, Dominic West for The Crown, and Best Actress in a Television Series Drama. That's Helen Mirren in 1923, Bella Ramsey in Last of Us, Carrie Russell in The Diplomat, Sarah Snook in Succession, Imelda Staunton in The Crown, and Emma Stone in The Curse. My friend. Sometimes you look at these nominees and there's a bunch more. I, I wanted to get, hit one more category with you, but you look uh-huh. at these nominees and you're like, someone somewhere is very wise about who they would like to see in a crowd shot at an award I show. I thought you were talking about the Bridget Everett show. Oh, no, not somebody somewhere. Yeah. Uh, to that point, though, somebody somewhere, a lovely show that would be buoyed and, and lifted up by awards recognition, but like they want to make sure that they've got Jennifer Lawrence in here and they've got Emma Stone in here and that they've got Carrie Russell and Helen Mirren Mm -hmm. and the cast of Succession and it's just very notable how these all work and I think that ultimately the musical or comedy bifurcation that they do of of shows allows them to just get as much star power as possible. Well, for movies certainly. Well, but in TV too. Yeah, but I'm saying but the Emmys do that too. Okay. Like with the they divide the categories. But but you're right. I, I have to say I've I've I'm looking over this list again, and it's like, I don't really have any problems with it. Yeah. You know, I mean. There are that, some shows that we haven't watched. There yeah, are some shows it, I don't love as much as the Golden Globes seem to love. Exactly. But this is a fair enough slice of what people were watching or talking about or considering in 2023. It is absolutely plausible. And my guess is that was the main criteria mm-hmm. for this nouveau iteration of the Golden Globes. It's like, let's not be clowns. Yeah. Um, which is fine. That said, one of the things about the Globes that I have appreciated in the past is every so often there would just be something that was so clearly bought, like just so clearly bribed oh, yeah. or, or, you know, FYC'd, F- 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 <laughs> like FYC'd, like personal FYC, like yes. would you consider this person coming to your home, <laughs> that it really stood out, but that made it a little bit different and made it a little bit more interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm comparing this, like the, this is the week that you and I are also making our top 10 list. Mm-hmm. And our shows are a lot of my top 10 here. No, but the top ones are. Yeah. I think that we're going to see it. I have a suspicion that this year, our top 10s, I, w- I wouldn't speak for Kaya in this situation, but no. I would imagine she might agree with this, mm-hmm. that we're going to all have very similar top four or fives. Yeah. And then wildly divergent six through tens. Yes. And, you know, don't hold me to this. I may even reverse this take in this podcast. But I, I'm feeling a little nostalgic for mass content. Mm. Like, The Diplomat, I have not, I still have not checked out. I might just watch an episode or two this week, not because it's going to be on my top 10, but because for the reasons I'm about to say, which is a lot of people watched it. Yeah. A lot of people I know watched it. I've heard varying opinions about it. Some people thought it was good. Some people thought it was bad. 
both groups watched it, you know? And I think that's interesting. Yeah. I think that it's interesting to have programs that draw a wide audience of people with d- disparate feelings about it. You do know, you know like, what shows do that? Tell me. Netflix shows. Well, because they're watched. Yes. And that's really the only reason at this point. I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, but I'm not, but like that doesn't make me upset to see it there. You know, and 1923, I watched a couple episodes. I didn't think it was great. But again, like the Sheridan verse should be, attention must be paid. Yeah, it should be recognized, I think. Um, I will leave a lot of the uh, the sort of divining of nominations and, and, and figuring that stuff out mm-hmm. about in the movies department to the big picture. But I did want to ask you about one special new category they've introduced yeah. here, which is cinematic and box office achievement. And this is something that... Uh, I feel like they almost beat the Oscars to the punch to uh, on this one because there's long been a suggestion that the Oscars need to get a little bit more wide angle and a little bit more populist and and start bringing in more blockbuster movies somehow so that more people feel like a an engagement or like that they have a horse in the race um and for the most part you know like a normal person probably sees a, you know, eight to ten movies a year, maybe. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know how often people, uh, Joe Public goes to the movies. I would imagine that half, if not more, are blockbusters, and then maybe they see like a, a couple of the the year-end Best Picture nominees, and and that's pretty much their movie-going year, and then maybe they catch up with everything else on streaming. Cinematic and box office achievement I, is the HFPA's, or rather the Golden Globes' effort to sort of just get a bunch of really big titles mm-hmm. involved, and I presumably have folks there. Now, I believe Barbie got the most nominations out of the Golden Globes at all, but Barbie heads this list of cinematic and box off achievement. It's Barbie, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, John Wick Chapter 4, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, Oppenheimer, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and and maybe the most cynical act of all time, the Taylor Swift film. Super, super cynical. Uh, Yeah, can I talk about this? Please do. This is really stupid. Because, no, let me be clear. Acknowledging and celebrating big popcorn movies is a good idea. And as you said, the Oscars have been hemming and hawing and gnashing their teeth over this literal category for so long, the Globes just took it. Yeah. Which is fair. And if they, if the Oscars had a list this year, and I think you should probably, maybe to be fair, make it, you can either be a Best Picture nominee or you can be in this category. Right. You can't be both. But I, I would be, I think it would be pretty exciting if like Tom Cruise, Chris Pratt, Taylor Swift, Keanu Reeves, like yeah. all showed up for an award show because of this. They won't. Yeah. But what's really dumb about the, 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 the selection for this category is like, you know what the achievement for these movies is? Money. <laughs> like they won the achievement. Yeah. And if you're just lumping in movies that made a lot of money, it seems incredibly cynical and dumb because you're not saying that these were special achievements in any way other than the fact that they achieved millions and millions of dollars around the world. Right. Which is a bummer because some of these movies are extremely good. Some of these movies are good enough to have been, as you said, nominated in the real categories. Yeah. Oppenheimer and Barbie are nominated for Best Drama and Best Comedy slash Musical, respectively. That kind of... That kind of should be enough. I mean, I, I, I don't know. You, you, then you end up going down the cul-de-sac that the Oscars have been in for years, which is Spider-Verse. I mean, I'm, I'm with Sean. Like, that was Sean's, one of his top three mm-hmm. movies of the year, right? It is for me, too. 
One of my other top three movies of the year is Past Lives. Past Lives was nominated for the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. It's thrilling. Celine Song was nominated for Best Director for Past Lives. She'd never directed anything before. That's exciting. Yeah. If you do the sort of dream version of what the Oscars have talked about heading towards for years, and Spider-Verse gets nominated and, um, you know, the, the other worthy things here get nominated, uh, it probably pushes out of Past Lives. So I don't really see the way forward here. I guess I guess I wish that this category had more to say about what it was trying to curate. Uh, yeah, it's like, should it be the best best film that makes a baseline of $200 million? Like, best I blockbuster? Yeah. I think the problem is then you start getting, then the, the thing that they're trying to avoid doing, but they've now backed themselves into the corner, is litigating what this category is, which is basically saying, you're good for what you are. Right. Who sets that floor? Because every so often you get a movie like a like Barbie or Spider-Verse, which is just good. And it's also a right. billion dollar grocer. I mean, I think that if I was, if we're just having this conversation, which we're, this is why we do a podcast, I would say that my biggest frustration right now is how um, bottlenecked we are at the end of years with good movies mm-hmm. and how they basically have made it so with few exceptions, the 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 sort of year-end films, the the award season films, must all come out within a six-week. And, and yeah, it can feel awesome and you can feel stimulated because you're every, maybe twice a week, you're seeing May, December, and then leave the world behind, and then you're going to go see mm-hmm. Napoleon, then Ferrari, or something like that. But I think that the year would benefit with a more evenly distributed amount of good films. That's like my big pet peeve with yes. the way that award season works. It's very weird that with all the innovations and in how movies are released that that hasn't been reconsidered. But I would say with this cinematic achievement thing, one thing that I got the sense of, especially with Top Gun Maverick, was it was almost being used. You know, like it was mm-hmm. in no way was it sincerely being thought of as a as a best picture candidate last year and i wonder whether or not there's a little bit of a backfiring going on when you basically have like if you were say to in if you were going to nominate um john wick chapter four for a best picture nom- right um it would not win but you like that right you think it's good i thought it was amazing yeah i'm I not thought, i, that I, was, I did was, not it was have... you would actually love of all the john wick movies i don't yeah. know if you've seen it but like any of them, but you would love John Wick 4. I'm not against this project. Yeah. There's parts of John Wick 4 that is like, this is a Buster Keaton film. That's cool. Um, but if you nominated that for Best Picture with the hopes of getting some John Wick heads to watch the Oscars, but really with no chance whatsoever of seriously competing, mm-hmm. I don't know that that necessarily helps. You know, it's like just having these popular movies there as keywords doesn't matter. So if you were to create a category in which something could be awarded to these films, which have achieved the thing that movies desperately want the most, which is popularity, yeah, then I think that that would be good. Yeah, I just think there's there's something about this category that rubs me the wrong way because it's just it's just so cynical. Like I I I saw the Super Mario Brothers movie within the first two weeks of it. Opening. Yes. My children were excited to see it. You, Nick Sirianni, Dom from the Eagles, you guys all went opening night. <laughs> we all wore matching sweatshirts. <laughs> My, I, I would honestly give you $1,000 if you got a visor with an Italian flag on it. I feel like I couldn't pull it off for a variety of reasons, but thank you. Um, so uh, we saw this movie. My, I'm very proud of my children who are open-hearted young women who are like, that wasn't good. They enjoyed seeing it. 
they don't, they're not angry about it. They're happy we went, but they knew even at their younger ages that this is not good. Yeah. It's just ticking some boxes and was a fine way to spend an hour and a half eating junior mints and gummy bears. Right. Great. That shouldn't be here. It's not good. You know what I mean? It, but it, good job for Universal. <laughs> good job, Illumination. You made a billion euro. But similarly, like, I don't know if anybody is saying the Taylor Swift movie, which I'm very eager to see. Well, you're going to be able to pay for it. Cinematic this achievement. This weekend, I believe, yeah. You know, I think people are like, that That gave people something wonderful that they love. But Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, nobody's saying that's good. Uh, some people are. Are they? Didn't you? No. Did you see it? Yes. I thought Sean was like, that's the real one. That's the last good Marvel movie that we're going to get. Well, it's probably the last decent Marvel movie. It's the last Marvel movie that has like human fingerprints on it. Right. But mostly the fingerprints are like raccoon fingerprints. It's, <laughs> it's a little pause. It's entirely yeah. about like animal experimentation. No, I heard about that. That's not yeah. my favorite kind of uh, story. So I, I've not seen it yet. Honestly, I know it's weird to be like, I don't want to see Rocket get traumatized. That's not your favorite story? Yeah, I, I had a, an experience when I was a kid. When uh, my parents took me to go see the Matthew Broderick film Project X, I know everything you're about to say, yeah. and I just didn't. I really didn't like it. I didn't. I did not enjoy. I, and I still to this day do not really in, for, like like animal cruelty in films. Mm -hmm. Yet you love John Wick Four. <laughs> <laughs> so messed up. Well, like the people have it coming. A, that that's a, this is now four films of him taking out revenge for. <laughs> for his dog. I mean, oh, like, okay. So he's on your ways. side. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, why don't we take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk about the curse in the context of what's on right now mm -hmm. and then we're going to talk about leave, leave the World Behind. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy and right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We're back. Andy, I wanted to talk about the curse. And I wanted to do it in a way that was a little bit more of a survey of what's on right now. We love to power rank things yeah, I here. I want to talk about the real estate market in New Mexico. We could do that too. I, I, I'm trying to feel out where mm -hmm. you're at with this show I, because... I'm ready to tell you. Okay. Well, what are you worried? Because you're worried that it's not... I would say that the curse has been a fascinating week-to-week -week watch. Mm -hmm. And this is my failure as an as a opinion haver and as a takesman. I just don't. <laughs> the first order it takes. I don't feel. Yeah. Shout out to greatest of all talk pod. They're they're the takesmen. I don't feel like I am coming out of each episode with the cur of the curse with like a ton to say. I'm I'm deeply uh -huh. admiring the craft and the performances. I laugh. I cringe. I see where some of it is going but for some reason I'm also like I am waiting to find out that this is all happening in a diorama shaken up by an angry god you know like <laughs> well, you could tell me anything is gonna be a twist in the second yeah. half of the season um, and I'm finding it it moves at such like a slow and incremental pace in some ways because it's so uh, I, I don't even know what to, to say it's almost like the stories all feel like B stories 
um, within the story of the the show itself. Like, I still don't know what is. So your feeling is that it is a collection of potential stories under the umbrella of the the idiosyncratic interests of the people making the show. Yes, and it, 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 it's it a is a densely first. plotted yeah. and actually very well plotted and well told story. But I did not. I guess maybe this is an expectations thing where it's like I did not think that we would be now five plus hours into this series and still talking about like which like sort of fake internet uh, influencer meets Whitney's standards for occupation of one of her passive homes. So I completely empathize with that feeling. And that is generally where I had been over the last few weeks. I thought this was the best episode of the series to date. This is episode five. It's called It's a Good Day. I think we could table for the moment the conversation over whether it's a, a good idea to wait five episodes to kind of reach the point, re- reach the main body of your story. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the scheme of things, I guess it's a 10-episode series. This is the midpoint. So everything up to now was table setting, and now we're at the table, and then everything else will be either um, eating the meal, I guess, or throwing all the dishes into the fire right. like an um, extravagant Greek wedding. Right. Um, TBD. I thought this was, now look, this is still the curse. It's still the people, it's still Safdie and Fielder. And so I don't have a super chill time watching this. I would say my body language was worse during my viewing of episode five of The Curse than it was during the first half of Eagles Cowboys, which, you know, as you saw, was not awesome. Um, But I was locked in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's for two reasons. One, the, this was the show that I I think we were promised over a year ago when, when it was described that it was about a couple making a, I mean, they said home renovation show. It's not that, but a HGTV type yeah. show. This was about the filming of an episode of that show. Yes. And also about their real life foibles and interconnected stresses and anxieties and backstories and like the actual real estate business that they're trying to run behind this, the falseness of all of it brought to the fore. It was also, but the second reason why I think it was excellent is because it was just a showcase for Emma Stone, um, who is the single best reason to watch the show, whose performance is so wild, so compelling, and totally unique. And so because of that, I felt very, I felt more grounded, even though I'm never, ever comfortable watching this episode. I... Do you, do you see what I'm saying though? Where I, I'm like, there's something about I, I've I've I resisted like getting too far into any of the discourse about the show because I didn't want to find out that in episode seven or eight, like it truly starts to blow your mind what they're doing. Because I I actively anticipate that. And if there's one show on TV right now that I feel like is got the potential for everybody stop what you're doing and you have to watch the latest episode of The Curse because you won't believe what happened. It's The Curse. Or, I, I mean, there's... I, Fargo, I think, is good, but I, I kind of have a sense of where it's moving. You know, Slow Horses, the pleasures of that show are very obvious and very, you know, even if mm-hmm. there's twists and turns, I think they've figured out what Slow Horses is and how to do it. Murder at the End of the World, I've been keeping up with mm-hmm. and I'm just... Because I'm a mystery addict, need to see this... Mm-hmm. filled out but I think I have a sense of like what that show is trying to do I don't really know what the the curse is trying to do and I, I think that's exciting 
I think it's also sometimes a challenge. Um, but it, it's, it is the show that I think has the potential to be the breathtaking, I never thought that this was going to happen moment, which is not necessarily mm. the only thing television can do or the reason I watch television. Yeah. But I guess I keep waiting for that I, moment to happen. I think I don't disagree with you, but at the same time, I think the reasons I liked this one was were the the opposite of that. Because I felt like the show had plateaued in its situation, in its in its setting, in its setup. We understood the Again, I, I'm never comfortable watching the show, but I felt more settled mm-hmm. in the premise or at least in the boundaries of this episode because it was an episode about filming an episode. And because of that, I thought um, I thought the, the, the flourishes landed more. And by I say flourishes, I mean, and this was an episode directed by Nathan Fielder, there's a moment when uh, Asher and Whitney are talking, you know, presumably mic'd, but we don't know that. Um, and they've chosen to, to take to talk privately in the shade of a nearby house. And Fueller sets up a two-shot where you see them from the outside, but then we're also seeing them from the inside of the house where a woman is just watching television. Mm-hmm. And that was straight up Lynch. That was super David Lynchy, and I thought it was awesome. Yeah. And it did not feel showy to me the way that like him stopping episode two to pour Gatorade on himself yes. felt like uh, oh, this is an episode of a Nathan Fielder show now, not The Curse. Right. It felt of a piece with it. Um, but also, it allowed it to sort of be more settled, I thought, in the satire. So the way we we went, the, it was like, it was a sitcom in that the comedy was coming from the situation. And the situation was the falseness of touring people through the house. So the first time, it's the people who actually were about to buy it. And they're like, I'm hot. Yeah. I don't like this. Um, the second time is, I forget the woman's name, it's the native artist that has this Kara, like, yeah. Kara, this intense like frenemy, but mostly enemy relationship with Whitney and her behavior. And then when they start just grabbing people from the street and the guy stops it to sing because all he wanted to do was be on television <laughs> is so funny. And then ultimately your guy, Dean Kane, The Blue Lives Matter homie, yeah. But like, first of all, the casting of Dean Cain, yeah. who is himself a uh, reserve police officer in the small town in Idaho. I did not know that. I, I wikipedia I'm sure it's accurate to the moment. <laughs> but I, I would say just broadly speaking. If you were going to be a small town police officer anywhere, yeah. would it be Idaho? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Idaho. Yeah. And uh, no, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think I would. Um, what kind of calls do you think he's getting? Chill. Yeah. Real chill. But maybe to, to his point, to the sticker on the character's car, like he's probably, when he gets called, he's probably, he might be welcomed. You know, right. we, we don't know. No, but I mean, again, a, a cursory Google suggests that Dean Cain is uh, in somewhat aligned with the character that he's playing in terms of his own personal donations. But that what, the satire worked for me, where it's just like, this guy loves this house. Right. And it in that he's moment... Like, tell me you didn't change the bathroom. And he goes in and he's like, I'm, I'm going to need a few minutes. minutes. <laughs> but it was all of the things at once. Like, that yeah. was for me the show becoming a successful TV show because... I was in it. I was with the characters. It was funny. I'm thinking about the the intensity and weirdness of selling something that you made, your art or your commerce. You're thinking about the falseness of television. You're thinking about the impossibility of aligning everything perfectly with your preferred online politics. Like, it all worked. Yeah. And I was excited for that moment because it felt like the show had been doing 100 things, some of them well, all of them interesting, and then succeeded. Yeah. All right. I, I feel like we could put a pin in that. We but, did we're, the- but by the way, I did not expect after watching the pilot that I would be in for 10 episodes of the show, that I would be consistently 
intrigued and drawn back to it. What do you think that that is? Because I was looking at, I, I was thinking about what's on, and there's a few other things that are airing right now, like For All Mankind, which, you know, I, I fell behind on to a, an almost fatal degree and yeah. now kind of, uh, to be completely candid, like we'll check in on from time to time if mm. there's like a really significant episode being bandied about, but feel like I'm following along sort of uh, through recaps, which is sad, but I, it's also what I'm doing. But that's a show, I, I have not watched any of the season, but like I, I, it seems unique to me in that I don't really have a complaint. I liked everything that I saw of it. And I have no fire in me to do it. Yeah, to keep watching Monarch, which I don't think you ever checked out. That's the the, I didn't. the I took, Russell family. I took that week off. Are you enjoying it? Zilla movie, yeah. And then I was looking at the Ringer, and people should be doing this too. The Ringer streaming TV guide, and the top ten right now are the shows that I mentioned: Fargo, The Curse, uh, Slow Horses, Murder at the End of the World, For All Mankind, Monarch, and three animated shows: Invincible, Blue Eyed Samurai, and Scott Pilgrim. Mm. Uh, none of which I am watching. Uh, I would also throw Gilded Age in there. I, Gilded Age, I watch every Sunday with my wife, and we have a delightful time. Of all those shows, I'm I am surprised that the curse seems to be the thing that you're most, other than slow horses, that you're most reliably like. Well, I'm I, coming here for my daily vitamins. I think there's a reason for it. I mean, out of that list, it's an odd. This has just been an odd end of the year, and, and part of it is strike related, but also it might be just a glimpse of what what TV might be like for a while as it figures itself out, yeah. or hopefully as the industry figures itself out. Um, I mean, Slow Horses is so exceptional, and I cannot wait for a new episode every week. So that's my that's my clear number one. I think the curse is still rolling because I, well, for all the reasons I just said, I think it's achieving something, and it's interesting, and Emma Stone's performance, attention must be paid to that too. <laughs> but it's very, very odd and unique. And I just, and becoming more attuned to the fact that that might be something slipping out of TV, out of TV. Yeah. And I think of it this week because, as I said, I'm I'm catching up on stuff that I missed in anticipation of our year end yeah, you're show. Watching some beef, so you? I was watching beef. Yeah. That was the other thing that I watched of the week. What are we doing? Watched of the weekend. The watch. Uh, I watched this weekend. <laughs> did you brand it? Do we have the watch of the that? weekend? Kaya, can we no, get into Kaya, that? Kaya, Kaya was not. We did not prepare Kaya for <laughs> You didn't prepare me for Remember it. Remember when we were sitting like who won the week like when we were doing Hollow Perspectives, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, the watch of the weekend. TBD if we're going to change that. Um, I think Dak Prescott won the week, unfortunately. Um, and as did Chris, who's been reliably riding Dak in fantasy. No wonder you're so chill. I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. No. But I lost anyway. It's okay. I'm sorry, buddy. I think the real, you know the thing where it's just like, I don't, I don't have a drinking problem. And then like the guy you think who's your friend who maybe drinks too much is like having club soda. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, that was me watching our buddy Zach Barron's face when Jalen Hurts fumbled. And Zach seemed by and large fine and content in his life and like happily playing with his son. Yeah. And I was like skinning my own hand. Like, oh, I'm, You're the problem, it's you. I'm the problem. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was watching Beef and I'm pretty intrigued by it. And I'm sorry that I didn't watch it along with the rest of America eight months ago or whatever. But the thing that I was really grabbed by was, oh, here's something again. Mm-hmm. This is I, this looks different. It feels different. The energy's different. Um, it was surprising. Now, yes. I, I think, you know, I, I sort of picked up from the, the discourse and a little bit from talking to you that people's mileage may vary on the long-distance mileage of that show, right? That it may sure. not have worked across the, se- the season. But I, I would say even in that, even in that, it still continues to go places it's just 
There is a version of that show that's six episodes. Mm -hmm. And the season that they told, the story that they told, ends in a place where I think it warrants the length of the story. Okay. Yeah. I think that one of the refrains that we keep coming back to this season, this year, this moment, um, is much like with the gold where there were two Englands. Like, I wish there were more than two, two television Americas. Yeah. Like, Slow Horses is absolutely exceptional good TV. And I don't mean that to take any credit away from it because I love it. It's my favorite thing. Um, the Curse and Beef, and there, you know, we could throw a couple other things in there and we'll probably get into this on Thursday more, um, are super out there going for it. Mm-hmm. And I love that too. My happiest place is when we cross the streams. And we get something that I unabashedly love that is, you know, take like ticks all the boxes in terms of like production values and pacing and et cetera, et cetera, respect for the audience in a certain way, but also makes you feel like you're on a rocket ship journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a little bit lacking. And I think that's also to a degree what you were alluding to with what we might, all the three of us in this room might discover on Thursday when we do our top 10, where it's like shared four and then six, I don't know. Pick yeah, em, right. Pickums. Yeah. Um, Let's end by talking about Sam's movie. Sam Esmail, uh new film. It's his second feature film, is that correct? Uh, after Comet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously is uh, was, was released on Netflix over the weekend. It's Leave the World Behind. It's an adaptation of uh, Ruman Alam's uh, novel of the same name. It stars Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Mahala, Ethan Hawke and Kevin Bacon and is essentially about two families that find themselves thrown together in a Long Island vacation home as the country falls apart after essentially a cyber attack. What did you think of the film? I think people know what I think of the film when they heard that Sam has been disinvited from our year at No. Let's not make any drama about this. We, 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 Sam is very busy with this movie and that's why he's not coming on this week. Um, We love him. He's, the invitation is always open and, I mean, is it is it a kink that we like to be yelled <laughs> at by him? Especially at the end of the year. It's the end of the year. It's like, it's like around the holiday we time. Just, we really grinded out like 104 yeah. episodes and then Sam comes in and is <laughs> like, just like, you guys fucking suck. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think that's a good corrective for us and I'm sure we'll get some of that energy again in our lives. Um, so I really admi- liked and admired this movie a lot. Um, I was really unsettled by it. I was really happy that I, I get... You know, I've, I've been saying this about a lot of movies, but I did see it in a theater, not at home. So I felt really, really drawn in to a degree that I think really suited um, the mood and the tenor of the movie. Um, big picture, I was so thrilled to see a end of the world movie that was just about people mm. that was focused. Um, I think that we've spent so much time watching Sokovia's Rise and Fall. <laughs> That like just to just to drill down on what it might be like as a lived experience, especially as a you know as an all of us had a kind of preview of this in 2020 yeah. of like just being trapped in a place and then not knowing what you can trust and not knowing what's going on outside your window. Really, um, I thought it was really really effective on that. I think as someone who knows Sam well and has uh, worked with him well, I felt like the first. 10, 20 minutes of the movie, I was like, oh, this is, I'm, I'm kind of triggered, like being in an edit bay with Sam <laughs> because right. for his stuff, not mine, because it's very Sam and it's very intense. And he's such a brilliant technician and, um, you know, has such a keen sense of 
camera and camera movement, and he works so well with his DP, Todd Campbell, that like, I felt almost overwhelmed by it. Sure. There's a lot of ideas in the first half hour of the movie. Yes. Both cinematically and also in and terms the, of like how the story is going to And needle drops and all these things. And it felt very, very busy. And I was giving me a little bit of like heart palpitations, which, by the way, are suitable for a movie like this and its, and its subject matter. But what I was really struck by was after those opening 10, 15 minutes, I felt like everything calmed down and focused on what we had, what he had, which is an absolutely galaxy, galactic quality cast and a great story. And um, I really, I dialed into it from that point. Yeah, I thought that I had a similar feeling, which is like as they, and we're going to get into spoilers here, obviously for this film, it's on Netflix. I think a lot of people watched it over the weekend that would be listening to this pod. So I would just say that that first half hour is, I think, intentionally busy and intentionally overwhelming on a sensory level because he's going to get to a point where this group of characters are now going to be without a lot of the devices that are creating this noise. Yeah. And that it, it gets winds up being sort of a theme of the film is by the time Ethan Hawke's character Clay tries to go into town to find help, his GPS is no longer mm-hmm. working. His phone is no longer working. He gets lost because he just doesn't even understand where he is like most of us would now without a maps mm-hmm. on our, our phones. Um, the kids are addicted to their devices and playing video games and watching Friends reruns. But like as those devices die, as they get away from that, some of the things that they have learned from those devices actually become useful. But for the most part, the kids are just kind of like left to their own devices. And no oh, pun intended. No pun intended. And in some ways, their return to nature like affects them quite, quite it has quite an impact on yes. them because the the sun gets the the deer tick bite and and winds up getting quite sick. I thought that the coolest thing about this movie might also be the thing that some people don't like about it, which is that Sam made some fucking choices. He made some choices about how the story was going to be told tonally with like mm-hmm. camera work, but also like the way the dialogue was written and the way the dialogue was performed, especially by Julia Roberts, is not going to be uh, for everyone. And I thought it was pretty brave to take someone who is still in some ways considered America's sweetheart and make her essentially like a, a real uh, abrasive personality who never really quite gets to the point where you're like, now she's the hero, except for that one moment with Mahala with the deer, yeah. I guess. And that's like, I just really admire the choice. It, you know, it, like I think some people are going to watch this and be like, why are people talking like this? Uh, but I think that what he's really doing is distilling communication down to a very like kind of like what's the important thing for this person to say level Mm -hmm. rather than adorning it with like a lot of like cool, fun, overlapping dialogue and like references to things. I mean, he, we haven't read the book. I've heard the book is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And and, um, I've heard varying opinions from people who love the book, what they think of the movie. But one thing that I deeply respect is that Sam made his own movie. Yep. And I think that He's talked about the importance of that in adaptation. He's talked to me about that when we were working together. I think Ruman Alam has seems like in very good spirits about this movie. Seems yeah. to be on board with it, and and I think respects and appreciates that it's something distinct. Um, Sam rightfully gets a lot of credit for being technically uh, talented, and um, he truly is. And this is a virtuoso show of that um, on the well on the big screen or on your Netflix screen. But I think that um, his two most underrated talents are also on display here. One is exactly what you're alluding to, which is he believes in making big choices. And 
that sounds like sort of a facile comment, but I think in this industry, when there are a lot of competing forces and headwinds pushing you towards something safe, pushing you towards compromise, I think that whether it's just being stubborn or whether it's his artistic vision or some combination of both, he does not bow to that. Yeah. And sometimes it works out wonderfully. Sometimes it, maybe it doesn't. Your mileage may vary, but I appreciate that as in him as an artist. The second thing is he works really well with really good actors and I think uses them really well. And the relationship that he has with Julia Roberts and the trust they have with each other was pretty fascinating yeah. on display here because I think he ran towards something, right? Which from what I understand, and I apologize because I haven't read the book, is that the character is abrasive. He cast America's Sweetheart in that role to do something with that role. And I thought he was rewarded with one of the best performances I've seen from her in a while. I, I mean, she was certainly the, the other one that I would say is Homecoming. So he clearly like has unlocked something and maybe even rekindled like an interest in her in like making pretty interesting work. And you she, know, trusts she could him. Yeah. she could really coast and still be making rom-coms and and yeah and doing whatever she could even just be like on big little eyes or something if she wanted to but this yes she's doing pretty interesting work with sam i wanted to ask you about something that is i think a sam invention from the story and might seem a little uh myopic but it becomes basically the climax of the film and the and mm -hmm. the, the final scene which is so this younger daughter of the ethan hawk and julia roberts character of uh, amanda and clay they have two kids, and what the daughter's name is Rosie. Really, like uh, kids are good too. The they, kids are really the good. Casting is, all the cast is great. And uh, a running bit throughout the movie is this kid's desire to finish Friends. They have been rewatching Friends. They are really young. The daughter is like she wants to visit the coffee shop, and Ethan Hawke's like, I don't think that place is real. I think it's just a set. Go it goes on and on. She loses the Wi-Fi signal, so she can't watch it on streaming. She keeps asking if they can find it on reruns and mm -hmm. to explain reruns. But television commentary actually winds up playing a big part in mm -hmm. the story. And then it ultimately concludes with uh, Amanda, the Julia Roberts character, and Ruth, the Mahala character, are looking for Rosie, who's this younger daughter. And it turns out she has found a mansion near where they are staying, broken into it, then found a safe bunker like a panic mm -hmm. room bunker where that this person is built for this very reason for an apocalypse gone down there and it turns out that the person has a wall of dvds of old tv shows and she's able to finish friends and that is how the movie ends mm -hmm. and i will say in my living room there was a real like what the fuck exclamation um as i'm sure there were in living really? rooms and movie theaters across the world what did you think Sam was trying to say with I that? I was end? thrilled by that. Okay, I love. No, I mean I love that the being end. the literal yeah. end of the story is this kid. Gets oh, I to thought see it was friends. great. I mean, I thought there were a couple things. I mean, to be clear, I think Sam does a good job making it making it evident to the viewer that every all the characters are headed towards that bunker, that they will sure. be recreating or at least sheltering through, sheltering in place in that right. place. Um, even though we only follow Rosie's discovery of it. Um, one thing that we know about Sam as our friend and as a filmmaker, and this was very much true in Mr. Robot, is the comforting role media has played in his life. You know, I, I, there's a huge thing about Back to the Future for the Elliot character in Mr. Robot. Mm -hmm. Sam himself is a dictionary of the movies of our shit. We're the same age as him, as of our shared childhood and adolescence. Um, I think the idea of taking solace in made-up lives um, and in a way that feeling like a hopeful thing, that there is still something to lose yourself in, 
uh, is relevant to him and who he is as a person. I think that's a personal touch, even though people who listen to this podcast at the end of the year, all years except this year, know that he's pretty disdainful of mass market uh, television. Well, I think he's definitely disdainful of the idea of having television on as like a distraction or a nightlight, but he is not disdainful of television as a medium. True, But true, he's but... disdainful of shows that are manufactured to be done, it, uh, we say, folding laundry television. Yes, but I th- also think that I, I, I thought it was a really appropriate place to end a movie that is not making anything okay. Like the the world has ended, mm-hmm. essentially. The world as we know it and as these characters know it have ended. I thought this gave us a glimpse of a, the closest thing to a happy ending that would be possible. Um, but that in of itself is, well, it, it's a little dark. It's a pretty... Amb- I think that there's some ambiguity to the ending. It's interesting to me that you're like, we are to assume that they're all going to make it there and that they're all going to then live out their days in this like well-appointed bunker. Well, yeah. Because I think I would make the argument that that kid is, the son is still sick. Mm-hmm. He got medicine, quote unquote. Yeah. Amanda and Ruth are watching the city be destroyed with bombs. But they're also five minutes from that house. Okay. and. Because they saw Rosie saw the house from that same shed. Yes, and that Rosie has, you know, obviously terrified the people in her family by prioritizing seeing how friends ends over making sure her mom's okay or finding her brother or her father or any of that. Yeah, which I know is like a trope that like kids can sometimes just like lose themselves and like forget like what time it is. But I almost wondered whether there was like a. Uh, the world is ending and we are drugging ourselves on mass media. Oh, I think that's part of it too. Yeah. No, no, I yeah, I don't mean it's a happy ending. I think I, I found it to be a settled ending. And, you know, I don't think I don't think there's I think happiness this is kid off feels the table. more connected to these people on this show than she does to her family. The thought of being left alone with them. Yes. Yeah. I think that that's also there. I think I think the fact that all of these things are in play and my takeaway from the movie was a potpourri of all those different energies but he still found a way to, to land it yeah. in a way that, to me, felt narratively satisfying to what I had been watching. And I smiled. I was like, oh, I thought it was clever. Um, I think, what's that episode? It's like the one word ends or something is the name of that. Yeah, the, the, the last one. The I last think. one is yeah. what it's called. Yeah, exactly. I I really liked that. I also thought there was just some bravura set pieces. like um, The drone dropping the flyers is pretty awesome. That car chase. That, that, that super Hitchcockian car chase that that Ethan Hawke has the Teslas the Teslas I thought was absolutely jaw dropping yeah I, and one of the I've best never sequences. seen that before exactly yeah. I've well, never seen that <laughs> no but like but the idea years. of it and also in that it is a beautifully constructed uh visual set piece yeah that is emotionally relevant and tied to the context and the theme of the movie I thought was really powerful and really well shot the Mahershala on the beach um sequence oh, with the planes and yeah. I also thought he I mean he is just god tier movie star yeah. in terms of his charisma and Ethan Hawke is settled into this we talk about him every few weeks it seems like and just he's so present and comfortable being the people that he's being asked to be so Ethan Hawke in his real life is a Brooklyn Nets fan yes living wherever he lives I in imagine Brooklyn. in Brooklyn this character Clay mm-hmm. and Amanda they live in Sunset Park Brooklyn Park Slope yeah, Sunset Park, Park. Slope. yeah and when we see Clay for the first time, he's waking up. And what does he have next to him on his nightstand? I'm table? glad you're talking about this. It's a 76ers mug. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's for us? Yes. 
You do think that Sam Esmail was like, what basketball team did Chris and Andy like? That's the one that Clay should like? Well, he was like, this guy is doomed. Okay. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> foreshadow his inevitable sadness yeah. and disappointment yeah. by giving him the mug of a team that's never going to quite <laughs> You're still have really a happy in that ending. Space. Um, I, 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 that said, though, and I'm curious, I, I would like to read the book, and I'm curious about people who have read the book. The one thing that I'm still trying to sort out whether it tracked for me was it seemed like, at least in the log line and in the trailer and stuff, that one of the essential things of the, of the book is that even if the world is ending, we can't let go of our bullshit. Uh-huh. And that was evidenced by the black family. Um, in this case, it's a father and a daughter showing up at yeah. the Airbnb. Yes. And the sort of, we don't trust you, we don't know you. That piece of it felt a little bit neutered to me in the movie. And I don't really know why, whether it's just this, the, the expediency of like, we need to get the story moving, we need to get this moving in other places, um, whether it's the Julia Roberts of it, mm-hmm. but like the full-blown Karen-ness of the situation, right. of the potential for that, which I think, which, which to me felt like the spark of what I understand the book to be, and I realize how annoying that must you be. You should do uh, like your convention mm. Like, you know, people do these cons. Yeah. You should do a convention where it's just people who have read the book coming up to you at a signing table and mm-hmm. telling you what the book is about. And telling me, no, just but also then like kind of telling me what I'm wrong about. Yeah. Like it just, because it's because Sam didn't do it this year. <laughs> so people, but anyway, but do you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. but, but that also might be an example of something that ultimately I am on the side of, even if it doesn't always work, which is Sam took this and made his version of it mm-hmm. and what motivated him and what interests him. And I'm not really against that. I thought it was a, I, I, I think it was largely a, a very successful movie. Uh, what did you, what last sports question? Mm. How did you feel when you saw Kevin Bacon wearing a Cowboys hat in Long Island? I asked Sean, yeah. are there Cowboys fans on Long Island? And he was like, you may have heard of Cousin Sal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, I think there are, um, you know, front running types everywhere. Well, that um, guy, that guy had it was pre-prepared. Much like Mike McCarthy last night. <laughs> Kevin Bacon I, seemed really prepared. I'll say that I saw the movie like three weeks ago. And you're like, ah, oh, the Cowboys. I was like, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> At least he has that to take with him into the, the next world. Now I was like, joke's on me. Yeah, you just got your Sixers mug and, a, and Lyme disease. <laughs> I would have just approached him differently than Ethan Hawke did. I would have put the mug over my heart. I got to say, I would be so fucking mad if the world was ending and I went down with Lyme disease. But but wasn't the implication that he also had the like... The sonic, the, the, yeah, the the, the sonic waves. What were they called? Well, I don't remember what it was called. But it was like Havana Syndrome. Havana Syndrome. Yeah, right. Yeah. I thought Havana Syndrome was like... Well, I would be disappointed if there was like a, a big, a big battle for the soul of the country and I had Havana Syndrome. I can tell you one thing you would be more disappointed about. Hmm. If you had spent $2.6 million on a safe room, but then not been vacationing there that weekend. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been, that's the ultimate L. Yeah. We were like, God, I just, I just hope some children were in the Airbnb next door. (laughs) They really wanted to watch Friends. Why don't we wrap it up there? On Thursday, we're going to be doing our best TV of the year episode. The following Monday, a very special episode about the best episode of television. The episode of the year episode. Yes. This is a new thing we're doing. And we have some special guests for that one. So we're very excited about the next couple of watch episodes. I I realize we're we're pressed for time now, but Kai, I just want to check in with you too. Um, What's the tenor going to be 
between the three of us on Thursday. Yeah, like, have you decided how like, uh, combative and adversarial you're going to be? Has, I think like maximum just to, you know, try to fulfill Sam's role. Yeah, it's just, but it's just a character. Yeah, but if like if it's mask off for Kaya. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just like no hard feelings. Guys. All right, dipshits. Some- <laughs> this is what you got wrong this year. Enough already. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Kaya for producing us. We'll be back on Thursday with our best TV of the year episode. And until then, everybody, mm-hmm. stay hungry. It's a long NFL season. It's a long season. <laughs>